This is heavy strategy, where the questions are sometimes more interesting than the answers. I'm Jonna Johnson, and I have with me Greg Farrow, and today we're going to talk about standards. Who gets to make them? And what rules, what guidelines, what morals even guides the process of standards developments? Because one of the things that we're seeing right now, very topically, is we're seeing the conflict play out in Eastern Europe around Ukraine and Russia. But more globally, we're also seeing the same thing happen in Bangladesh. And we're seeing China try to make standards of its own. What strikes me about this, Jonah, is that as the internet becomes woven into our social fabrics, as technology becomes a core part of society, now society wants to take technology as part, it wants to apply its rules to tech. So technologists are losing control of technology for technology's sake, and it's society saying, I want technology that supports society. The challenge there, of course, is where tech is fairly pure and tends to converge around a defined set of fairly narrow set of best practices. That's a very generalized statement. Don't come at me. Um, but what we are seeing is now we've got uh, perfectly legitimate governments, Burma, uh, China, Russia, with divergent views from most of the other players, and yet we're saying there should only be one internet standard, one technology standard, or a unified technology standard between them all. And there's some, there's a lot of tension between the the societies that some people want to promote and the societies that other people want to promote, and technology is wedged in between. Furthermore, talk about the fact that when you look at standards, you know, I let, I was, I admit, I was smiling when you were saying uh, technology is pure, mm. but in some respects, it is because technologists are looking at solving a problem. The challenge is that who gets to define what the problem is, and what we're seeing right now is that governments are defining the problem as you guys can all talk together and I can't spy on you, or you guys mm. can all talk together and share misinformation that I wish to be able to shut down with the push of a button. Mm -hmm. um, technologists would not consider this a that would that wouldn't be a a bug that would be a feature and actually it was designed into the core internet i will say though that it's not necessarily anything new because i remember back in the 1990s when the u.s government imposed Kalia, and uh, i i love this by the way mm. here's a here's just a, a tell for whenever somebody is promoting a standard that is something you should think about very carefully. If they yeah. bring up child abuse and they say, yeah, but we need to stop the pedophiles, mm. that's a tell. Because when they brought up Kalia, the issue was, you know, the US law enforcement agencies didn't know how to tap, wiretap these new IP switches, yes. aka routers. Mm -hmm. And so they forced vendors like Cisco and others to build in an automatic tappable thing. And I remember at the time, because I was young, naive and idealistic. And mm. one of my friends was then, the chair of the Internet Engineering Task Force, and he was cranky about this because he said, this is bad, it will lead to bad things. And in fact, he was correct. I just didn't have the vision to see it. He was, you know, a decade and a half older, and that decade and a half yeah. made all the difference. Yeah, I guess, I guess the challenge here is that part of what the Internet was at its inception, it started out as, you know, the military project, and the idea was to sustain any-to-any -any communications even if some part of the network was damaged, some part of the network would continue. So, By the way, that's partially a canard, but carry on. I'll yeah, come back it, to that in a second. But It's yeah. a design intention, much more of an aspiration than a reality. The way it's well, worked no, that, out is... It wasn't actually the design intention, mm. but I'll come back to that. But what's increasingly happened is the people who designed the first generations of the internet wanted to have freedom, wanted to open participation to anybody. And that, of course, has come... 
Now, that was definitely a societal thing. So society put those rules on those technologists or technologists wanted to achieve or information wanted to be free, that connecting to the network should not have any controls or restrictions, that participating... I'm, I'm going to push back yeah. on that entirely. That there's, There are a whole lot of myths that have grown up around the internet. It is certainly true that at the same time, there were two separate and parallel initiatives that ultimately merged. One was the military initiative you mentioned, but the real foundations of the internet were uh, as a scientific and engineering network to share scientific and engineering information. I know this because back in those days, I was doing particle physics and it was created literally for me. I mean, not me personally, but me and my colleagues, which is why there was this whole information wants to be free. And, and its distributed nature was less an outcome of military requirements than just sort of a happy coincidence that that was the easiest way to get everybody connected. And if I needed to download my stuff from Fermilab, I could go through, you know, a hop over here and there I went. I, and this is important because that's why there's there's such a clash between what the internet is now and what it was then. But there were constraints. And I just wanna, I wanna highlight the fact that back up until about the early 1990s, mm. there was something called the acceptable use policy, which said you had to be a nonprofit if you were using the internet. Yeah. So you could mm -hmm. use the internet for any reason, if you were a research company, if you were, you know, well, they counted the military as a nonprofit, but you know what I mean? There was a conscious decision by the National Science Foundation in the United States to hand over the reins of the internet for commercial de development. And they did in, I wanna say 1992, but it could have been 93 or 94. Uh, they handed it over and at that point the internet started to become what it was. But because it was founded not in the US military, but really in the US you know, research and development science arena, that's why it's got so many of the characteristics of wanting to be free. And there was a military initiative that was happening at the same time and they did ultimately merge, which is one of the reasons that everybody talks about the founding nature of the internet being to survive a nuclear war. It really wasn't. It was to get scientists to share, to en enable yes. scientists to share data. Well, that's true, but it was also part of the initial funding for the IP yes. for As some parts of the network. So it's a blend. This is what I was saying. It's not one thing. It's it's blended. Right. So, the IP design was originally intended to be a communication network for the military that was decentralized. No, it wasn't. That's what that's what I'm saying. It was but originally the use case intended... that it was eventually adopted for was no. What what exactly? Yeah, the yeah. military took a look around and said, "How can we do this?" Yes. Oh, hello, over here. The scientists and geeks have developed something we can repurpose and start funding with yeah. ARPA, and that's what they did. But it was originally hmm. designed originally originally just to locate you know locate supercomputers at research facilities and connect to them yep. and then the military said this has this has a use case for us let's fund it and throw dollars at it that's really what happened yes that's right so there was this base layer and then and like the whole internet is a layer of standards why that, it's a seven layer model well Sorry. we could have an argument <laughs> about that the seven layer model is the osi model interesting oh, the it, open it's oh that's absolutely true which and is the, the itu time, Right, yes. which is actually the UN standards body, the ITU. The DOD model or the early model was four layers and was later adapted in the community, in the ITF of the era, to be five layers. So the OSI model is not actually canonical, but it is the one that we teach Widely. I know it's funny. It's like, well, there's yeah. there's seven layers and we only use four of them. It's, you know, it's a bit like in particle physics where they talk about, you know, there's 21 dimensions to the universe, but, <laughs> you know, 19 of them are 19 of them are rolled up really tight and not useful. Like, oh, okay. 
Okay. Yeah. Can, That's string theory pa- for you. Pass but, the bong. Pass the bong. Let's have another game. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> if you're listening to it to this yeah. and you've gotten this far, you're probably like, "That's all very interesting, uh-huh. you old fogies." Yeah. Um, but why should I care? And Greg, you started at this this whole notion of standards, standards bodies, and government control. So maybe you want to talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> to create a distributed system. Or as I often think about it, if you're a technologist, the internet is a distributed system where all Absolutely. elements of the system have to agree to common standards to be able to communicate. And then what we have is a system where all the elements are distributed geographically and distributed in terms of ownership and distributed in terms of purpose. So they're not the same. The second part is that they are also federated. When you create a distributed system, the protocols that connect them together become a federation. It's a bit like if if you take a societal view. Now I'm going out on a bit of a stretch here for a technology podcast, but when well, you, what was that about the bomb? Yeah, that's right. So the federation idea is that once you agree to build a distributed system, you have to have a set of unified protocols that hold it together. And the core part about this is that you then must be able to agree that the protocols that everybody shares are common standards and held in the common good. So the IP protocol, HTTP formats, the data exchange formats that work over the top, TLS for encryption protocols that work, you know, all that, they are federated. What that means is everybody who's in the federation of the internet must agree to use those standards or you're not participating in the federation. And that is the same politically, by the way. If you join the federated states of Russia, you agree to abide by the rules of that federation. If you join the United States Federation, or as it's called the United States of America, then every state that joins those United States has to agree to the rules and regulations. So our standards bodies have to reflect that social dynamic and the technology limitations that it's a distributed system and that everybody who participates in the distributed system must have a converged view because everybody has to use the same the same technologies. Which I agree completely. You, know, you could talk about how there's kind of two ways to structure society. One is to get everybody to internalize the rules and live by them. And the other one is to enforce them in a top-down model. Hmm. I do want to highlight the fact, though, we've been using um, TCPIP as sort of the canonical example of a standard. First of all, the IETF has sworn for 30 years that it's not a standards body, except that it's a standards body, but nonetheless. Hmm. Yes. However, there are other equally effective approaches to getting that commonality and probably the most effective communication standard is, you know, 802, which is Ethernet, uh, which was actually devised by the IEEE, which contrary to popular belief is not a US government body. It is a standards body that happens to be headquartered in New York, which is the true capital of the United States. And it was actually founded by, you know, people who were not not necessarily native to New York originally to the US originally. And it is intended as a global standards body. It does arrive at standards, actual official standards. It does take a top-down approach by asking the engineers who attend its meetings, because I've attended these, I've, I've participated in the IEEE, I've participated in the IETF, and they're very different models, both work. The mm. IETF's informal or formal mantra or tagline is rough consensus and running code. Yeah. Greg and I talk about how we could solve a problem. Greg thinks he's right. It's like, okay, let me go build this. Let me go show it that it works. And now we can talk about it. You can talk about it all you like, but here's the working solution. Do you want to use it or not? Right. And right. the answer is you exactly. tend to end up using the solution that's working in front of you. 
Yeah, the IETF is more of a top-down approach that tries to carefully consider all the uses. And uh, sorry, the yeah. IEEE is tries to consider all the uses. It does work. Uh, you know, if you look at Wi-Fi, that was an IEEE standard as well. Uh, but the two things that I think people really need to think about, as Greg was kind of alluding to, when you're when you're looking at where standards come from, they can come from non-government bodies that are somehow informally government aligned. Um, and you want to look at the impact of large corporations on those standards bodies because there's an inherent tension. Large corporations have gotten where they are by opposing innovation. And so when new standards come along that will threaten them and force them to compete, they usually uh, they usually operate as drag. It's true for the legacy vendors, IBM, yes. HP, Cisco, Microsoft. Well, I would argue at this point, Amazon, yeah. Google, all of them. They don't uh, want to Yeah, compete. and then... Equally, we are seeing companies like Facebook and Amazon build platforms which are natural monopolies, which is different. There are companies which dominate the market because of positioning that prevent competition from emerging. And one of the very popular things in Silicon Valley is to build companies which are natural monopolies. They call it uh, the benefits of scale. Like once, if you're Amazon, once you reach greater than 60% penetration in the e-commerce market, you have all the data, you have all the customers, right. you can see what your competitors are doing inherently, you know which products sell, you know which products to promote, and so on and so on. It is certainly the case that Amazon and Facebook participate in all the standards bodies, if only to quash them. Anything they've done inside their data centers, they certainly don't want their competitors to be able to do to commoditize it and get it off the shelf. Well, they did in the so early days of white box. Yeah. They actually did. Oh. They were heavily promoting white box because they wanted to get it to scale. Yeah, it's and going to be cheaper for me. And then they were like, oh, crap, it's also going to be now cheaper it's a competitive for competitors. Advantage. Well, yeah, well exactly. in the early stages, they needed to get the market to rapidly move away from traditional vendors to break open, to disaggregate so that they could get, right. but they needed to get scale to make it cost effective for them. When that was achieved, they then realized that the most effective, that by customizing the product to their specific needs would give them another competitive advantage and then they closed up because those exactly. enhancements became proprietary and an advantage. And even over time, the need for standardized standards change. Amazon wanted, Amazon and, you know, Azure and Google liked white box in the early stages because everything was standardized and that gave them the ability to get uh, cheap, low cost, consistently manufactured, you know, no need to have a wide range of switches, just get one, focus down on a couple of models and get it. But then they realized that they could diverge the designs and then create their own custom designs once they reached a certain scale. So that's a natural monopoly. People call right. it network effects if you're a VC uh, you know, one of those business right. guru, rah-rah, whack, whack jobs, you know. Tying, tying this back to standards, the whole point is when you are following, uh, you know, as an IT professional, if you're following the standards bodies, mm. you know, it's kind of obvious that if a repressive authoritarian country like China decides to set standards, there's going to be a catch. Mm. And in fact, you know, one of the catches with new IP is the fact that it has a censorship button in it effectively, mm. yes. uh, which is why lots of people don't like it. So that's kind of the obvious. You can say, you know, maybe we don't want standards that are created in North Korea or China because there's going to be a big catch. You also want to pay close attention to the degree to which a standards body is controlled by companies, large companies, which is legacy companies, because they have an agenda that is not the ostensible agenda of the standards body. Right. They want to they want to slow things down. They want to consolidate their monopolies. And they want to keep things the way they are. That's fundamentally their agenda. 
from a social perspective, there's not a lot of difference between what China wants to achieve with its new IP or Russia's foreign uh, sovereign internet proposals as to what Google, Amazon, Facebook would do if they could. Right? Thank you. They That's exactly the point. That is they, exactly the point. If be, Facebook be, thought that they could implement new IP and convince everybody that Facebook should run, permit who's connected to the internet, Facebook would absolutely do so, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Facebook, Amazon, IBM, it doesn't matter, like pick your favorite love mm. to hate legacy provider, but they all would. Uh, and one, and I want to highlight that because one of the reasons the IETF as the unstandards body was so successful for so long was that participation in the IETF was not company. It wasn't, you didn't come in because you were a Cisco member. You came yeah. in because Jonna Johnson was interested enough in the technology to have something useful to say about it. And maybe I happened to work for Cisco that week and maybe I was going to go work for Juniper the next week and none of that mattered. Yeah, so there's it an enlightened, yeah. there wasn't it, what, what I would consider an enlightened participation in that those people who were participating in what they felt was an enlightened role were also bringing the social mores and the the moral values of their upbringing. And that was largely Western-centric or US-centric. The idea that, in principle at least, that everything is free and open. Of course, you and I both know that life is not free and open. Taxes, traffic laws are always mandatory because you have to restrict some levels of openness to protect each other, to protect basic safety or protect people from people right like don't go and poop on the side of the, on the sidewalk because it's a health problem that's restricting my rights and and actually i'm smiling because uh, a friend recently asked you know is are russians able to access the big internet and see you know sources of information that are not russian propaganda like in the us and i had to laugh because it's like in the us we're getting all kinds of corporate propaganda we're getting yeah. the cnn worldview and the fox worldview just because worldview. the network's open doesn't necessarily mean yeah, that you're exactly. not getting misinformation propaganda. or propaganda of a sort exactly yeah. so it was actually very funny it's like yeah that yeah. those two quite Things have nothing to do with each other. It's all propaganda. To come back to your point about, say, organizations like ISOC and IETF, and the interesting part about a lot of these standards, especially like the Internet Society, is while it may be apolitical in principle, it's often set up as a U.S. nonprofit, which leaves it, it, leaves it open. And at the same time, there is a product. You know, we talked about new IP. This is a Chinese led initiative and has a substantial number of countries over 50 countries support their new ip today that is being developed in the itu body in the un it is not beyond the pale to imagine that this protocol uh with all with all of its restrictions with its centralized control mechanisms is it can be desirable if companies like there is a vision of the future which says if facebook refuses to censor itself if google refuses to take ownership of the content that sits on its platform or says it's too difficult. You could see Western governments saying, we need to take control of these networks to control who's participating. Because if I need to kick Facebook off or Google off, I need a system to do that. And with the best of intents, new IP sits there to be able to enable that. Well, uh, I wouldn't call that the best of intents. Um, it's the, fer the very fact is that Western governments have an authoritarian streak a mile wide. Just mm. because we sort of call ourselves democracies doesn't mean we really believe in in the whole concept of a of a democratic republic. Because anytime you stand around saying I need to I need to constrain what people are saying, you've already sort of crossed the road into mm. authoritarianism. And yes, I do understand but, that misinformation is and real and it has caused problems. But but at the end of the day, you if know, enough you, people you, in a society say Facebook Facebook is a problem. Google is, YouTube right. is a problem. And there are people now saying to politicians, enough people saying, 
And keep in mind, Facebook pays oh, no yes, tax. Like I live in the UK, Facebook pays no tax in the UK. They, there is no benefit for the UK government in having Facebook here. Uh, the fact that people love author- authoritarianism and generally vote in fascism when they have a chance doesn't mean it's not author- authoritarianism and fascism. That doesn't mean they don't regret it slightly like wrong. There is a problem with these networks, with permission-based networks, and we've had it with MPLS networks for the last 30 years. If every time you wish to communicate to somebody and you have to apply for permission to do so, that tends to stifle innovation, both business innovation, the ability of business to communicate and trade information, trade data. It comes at the price of technology because if every new technology that comes along has to be permitted onto the system, new technologies don't emerge and the system starts to stagnate. And it also leads to societal stagnation because everything on the internet becomes tracked. This is where the challenge is, is that if you have, this is what happened with MPLS networks. If I wanted to communicate with you, Jonah, I'm communicating over the internet using Zoom. Did I need permission to go to a telco to connect a pipe between you and me to make this call happen? No, I did not. But that is what I did before the internet arrived. Even five years ago, over the internet, this was not possible. I would have had to be working for a big company, have an MPLS connection, communicate between the two. But the permission was the telco. And those were periods of low innovation, poor communication, controlled, restricted bandwidth. Does that ring ring true? It does. And, you know, I have some stock responses, either no, absolutely, or yes, and furthermore. And this one is the (laughs) yes and furthermore, uh, because one of the interesting things that starts happening when there are de facto standards that are set by large companies is that that whole distributed, highly resilient model breaks. So, Hmm. for example, back in the bad old days, when all we had was email, Uh, It didn't matter if any one email provider went down. Oh, shoot, your email, you know, AOL is down, but you can still you you can still talk with MCI mail or whatever. Mm. Now, if Twitter goes down, it's, you know, the end of the world. And the problem is Twitter is a company, not a protocol. And that is a very, very big deal. Uh, You know, if Twitter goes away, if LinkedIn goes away, if Facebook goes away, if WhatsApp goes away, and by the way, of WhatsApp being controlled by the Chinese, all of these things are, you know, now we have a single point of failure, which is also a single point of control, both of which are bad. So now that we've painted the incredible gloom and doom scenario, I want to kind of turn this back to someone who's listening, going, this is great. Now I feel even more depressed over my morning coffee than I did before. (laughs) What do I do about it? Regardless of what form of standards body it is, if you are an IT professional at a company, your participation is not only invited, but welcomed with open arms. But if you look at some of the interesting specs that are being set right now, the you know National Institute of Standards and Technology in the United States, NIST, is actually setting standards around quantum cryptography, which is going to control how things are done in 20 years. What's interesting about it is the primary organization that has deep interest in controlling quantum cryptography would be you guessed it, the NSA. Um, Not the guys I really want setting standards. But that's not because NIST is partial to the NSA. It's just because NIST is throwing a party and the only people that showed up was the NSA. But they are welcoming and recruiting participants from enterprise organizations. So if you can walk in and say, hey, we've just made a significant investment in blockchain for back office integration. We want to know what quantum cryptography is going to do and what do we need to think about with quantum resistant ledgers? You know, and by the way, I work at a bank. They want to hear from you. And you can simply by being there, being up to speed on the technology and up to speed on the issues, help influence them in a direction that works for you 
you personally as well as for your bank. <laughs> so the question is, do our standards bodies, are they fit for purpose? As technology becomes global, as the internet and becomes more a part of society, are the standards bodies that we've got open enough to be able to adapt? You have to respect that there are societies with governments that don't necessarily agree with mine. So I may or may not agree with the Russian government or the Chinese government or the Burmese government and how they wish to run their countries, but they are legitimate governments. And in the real politic or the real world, we have to listen to what they want if we want to build an internet that connects to them. Or do we bring our societal purposes and say, oh, no, no, the internet's got to be free and open and then realize the hypocrisy of that because we still have Facebook, which is not free or open or Google or YouTube or TikTok or any of those which run over the top. Do we let standards emerge where the network is free and open, but the applications don't have to be? Is that a, is that a viable standards break? First of all, I, I think the question of whether we have the right standards bodies is immaterial because there is no, you know, we that can suddenly wave a magic wand and change them. My argument is any standards body can actually work. I've hmm. given several examples and you've given several more, regardless of whether it's top down or bottom up as the, you know, hmm. IETF was. What it relies on is, as in any participatory democracy, people participating. <laughs> so my big thing is I don't really care what the shape of your standards body is or who runs it. I do care that that a wide variety vo of voices are show up, are heard, and will not shut up, mm. even if they're told to shut up. So that's thing one. Thing two, regar regarding the network and applications, yeah, the thing that keeps coming to mind is you can have interstates or you cannot have interstates. And the mm. development of the interstate roadways here in the United States was a major, major shift, uh, you know, that essentially jump-started a lot of our economic growth. And I can't think of any way to have that same economic growth if you have to pay to play, you have to have mm. parkways, each region can control its own roads. That's where we were until about the 19, whatever it was, 50s. The short answer is yes, you absolutely have to have an, a network that connects anyone to anyone without the constraint that says you can't talk to this person. And the weird part about that is that that's exactly what we had for the last 50 years with the telephone call. That was the most top-down, dominated by governments mm -hmm. and big corporations, and it still worked, which yes. is why I'm not that wrapped around the axle about what the shape of the standards body is, because mm -hmm. we've had two totally different examples of structure that still produce the same net effect, IP, yeah. TCP, IP, and the phone network. It's, it's just, it fascinates me that... You can have this situation where there's a tension between what people want from these networks and where we sort of, so many people just assume that the internet is going to continue on the way that it is. And yet that's not guaranteed. The Chinese new IP is actually substantially progressed in the ITU, in the UN, which is arguably the place where new technology standards should emerge, right? We've seen plenty of ISO standards. Look at the Global standard I would for I would argue that they right. shouldn't because the ITU has a really abysmal track record of effective standards, but that's just me. I would and like look at X five hundred, which was an ITU. Look at OSI model, which is also right. The OSI ITU. model was great. Yeah. Uh, there was never really an OSI network that took off because well, TCPIP TCPIP took the IETF took one look at the OSI model and said. This is a great model. We're going to go use it. Well, yeah. at least four layers of it. But 
yeah. But it's a great it way did, to think the OSI about model things. was flawed because I always thought that they took the four-layer model and added some more in a committee and made it worse. Well, and yeah. and similarly with uh, let's not let's not forget about ATM with its fifty-three byte cell. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a different. That story. was actually that was that was just the French. The French that, were being that was it. Yeah. And so there there is a there's a system here. There's no you cannot necessarily make the assumption that the internet will continue the way that you've always seen it or the way that it, it has happened for the last 30 years. There is a chance that it derails and the standard bodies are the gatekeepers of that. My challenge at the moment is is still understanding that most of the people who run the current standards bodies are generally aligned to Western politics or Western societies. And largely the, mo the bulk of the participants are US citizens paid in US dollars from nonprofits in that, US that's jurisdiction. Actually not, that's actually not the case, not the case, and not the case. I will no. agree with aligned with Western, mm. but for example, with the ITF, nobody's getting paid to go to the ITF. The ITF is not getting paid by the US government. Individuals pay to participate. Their companies may fund them or may not fund them. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't argue that, that it's, you know, the ITF is truly international. The IEEE is a little bit different, but still truly international. That said, I, I just don't want to let that that falseness stand. But that mm -hmm. said, your main point continues to be 100% accurate, which is largely aligned with Western worldview. Absolutely true. Are those people aware of these emerging changes? Because sometimes what I've seen in those standards bodies is the people that are there are often not flexible. They're often very fixed in their ideas. Standards processes tend to create a certain type of person yeah. who runs down a very narrow, narrow I, I, I disagree with that because as yeah. the, you know, one of the big points here is that there are different types of standards bodies. The ITF was flaming libertarians and everybody was an individualist. You know, the IEEE is a little more, you know, pocket protector, top down crowd. <laughs> they both work. My point on all of this is something you just said, which is, mm. are they aware? And I would say, if you're listening to this podcast, you are not a standards body, presumably, because that's an entity, mm. but you are a human being with an interest, both personal and professional, in the outcome of these standards. Go find a standard that's interesting to you and go participate. You can do it easier than ever because people can participate online. There are online working groups. There are online, you know, online sessions. There are online meetings. Yes. And even if you don't affect somebody, change, you will at least somebody who's stay attended informed. those meetings, they are deeply disturbing for their arcane processes and the people who are involved are didactic and very it depends on which focused. ones you've gone to, Greg. I've yeah. attended them. As I said, these were. That's, not, I was that's a, a generalization. Pretty, so there are. I was a pretty yeah. regular attendee to the two biggest ones in the past 30 years, the mm. IEEE, uh, all the shades of 802 and the IETF, which was TCPIP. And I would say not really. These are people that really mm. sit down and think about it. You know, so the ITU. Yeah, I think they're a little <laughs> they're a little hives inducing. But the point is, the point is. Don't get me started on the IEEE. <laughs> Yeah, well, they they're they're pocket protector crowd. It's okay. They're my peeps. I love them. They're all about getting revenue Wait. from getting their patents stuffed into a standard. The whole thing. Well, there is there there is that. Mm. All that said, the point is whether it's NIST developing quantum cryptography, whether it's the IETF continuing its work, whether it's you know I don't know. Will China let you even go play with new IP? Maybe you can go talk to the ITU and see. Mm. Uh, whether it's the IEEE, find a standard that's doing something you're interested in and go participate because your voice matters. Well, hopefully today we've asked some questions that have sparked your mind and we've tried to discuss them in an open and reasonably robust format. 
what we aim to try and do is ask questions which are probably more interesting than our answers because you have to find your own if you've enjoyed today's show it'd be so helpful if you would go and tell other people about it get out there on your social media on your linkedin tell people that you enjoyed today's heavy strategy and share it with other people and as always please do go and check out the packetpushes.net website there's many more podcasts in the same technology centric vein maybe you'd enjoy one of those thanks very much for listening